Good morning. Can you hear me? Here it is. Thanks, Tony. Um, welcome to church. It's good for you guys. Well, good for you guys to be with us. <laughs> We're glad you're here. Um, this morning, we'll be wrapping up our um, series for the last couple of months. We've been talking about the miracle of making God known. Um, special thanks to Andrea, who usually sings with the choir. She uploads all this to the website, so you can check out all our sermons on the website or wherever you subscribe to your podcast, you can get it there too. So, But this is the, the end of the series on miracle making God known. The whole thrust and the whole goal of this series has been to highlight the fact that the God of the universe wants to be known to us. And we looked at a couple different ways that God reveals himself. We talked about, you know, God revealing himself through creation and being a creator, God being compassionate, God giving and, and, and bringing justice into the world, and then lastly, God providing for us. We've kind of... Um, park the car if you want, um, and, and focus really on this idea, though, that God's ultimate revelation isn't just in his creation or his provision or his compassion um, or his justice, but it's really in Jesus Christ. What we're saying is that Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God. If you want to understand God, understand Jesus Christ. And one of the blessings of Jesus is that in knowing him, we get to know and see God. So this is why in the series, we'll talk about God being compassionate in the Old Testament and and we'll have Jesus being compassionate in the New Testament and going back and forth. Um, this morning we'll be looking at um, provision, but Jesus himself as God's ultimate provision for us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 3. I'll be reading the first 21 verses. We'll also have it up front so you can follow there. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Verily, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light. Hold on. There you go. Who <laughs> will not come into the light for their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they, what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are indeed God's perfect and ultimate gift for us. We thank you for the many blessings and gifts that we get through knowing you. Thank you this morning for the Holy Spirit, which allows us, or who allows us to see and know God our Father, who reveals the scripture to us, who transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ himself. And Father God, we thank you for being a lover of our soul. Thank you for giving your son, not just to save us from our sins, but to give us life, eternal life, everlasting life, life more abundantly. Thank you for your love. Thank you for always, always being our God who provides. In your holy and precious name, amen. 
So one of the things that's interesting about God is that provision or providing for us is one of the ways he reveals himself to us. I have a friend who um, used to say, doesn't it just seem like the, the God's just like obsessed with providing for us? And I, and I remember saying like, oh, that, tell me more about this God. This sounds good. Like always providing for me. I like this guy, you know. And, and the point he was making is as you go through scripture, it seems that whenever God identifies a need for his people, he provides. And, and this morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus is God's ultimate provision. Jesus is God's best gift. But what we have to also remember, though, is that Jesus shows up in a time and place a little bit later when you're looking at the whole arc of the scripture. Jesus might be God's best gift, but it's important to remember that Jesus isn't God's first gift to us. God's first gift to us was shalom. God created a world that was good and it was good in his eyes. God created a world of not just peace, but harmony and right relationship. When you dream with me this morning, imagine being in a world where you're perfectly in harmony with God, where you perfectly are known by God and God knows you and you're in perfect union and synchronicity and just love with God. God also created us in shalom and in perfect harmony, a right relationship with each other. All of us in this room probably know the pain of broken relationship, the pain of betrayal, the pain of something just not working out, the pain of, of going through life and being hurt with, by one another. Now imagine with me and dream with me that when God created us in the beginning, we were in perfect relationship with each other. We were not just okay with each other. We were fulfilled through God by each other. We were not broken and, 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 and taken advantage of. We weren't living in a world where we're always worried about me and mine to the detriment of others. We were in perfect harmony with each other. We were also given the gift of being in shalom with creation. If you look around our world, we see the brokenness of not being in harmony with creation. We see the, the, the rumors, the wars and rumors of wars. We see the creation itself through wildfires and earthquakes and hurricanes. We see even the broken creation in our relationship with each other and how we talk with each other, how we value each other. We lived in a world when God created it that was perfectly in harmony and right relationship. Now, the one that's hardest for me and just walking and, and living with people, you know, my 36 years on this earth, is this one to imagine. When God created us in shalom, we had perfect relationship with God, with creation, with each other, but even with ourselves. Imagine a world where you never have to wonder, am I good enough? Because you knew God was good and you're loved. Imagine a world where you never have to wonder, will I ever be good enough? Will I ever get through this thing? Will my past always dictate my future? Will my past always spoil my present? Imagine a world where you can stand in the mirror and say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am God's masterpiece. I am when God made me. He said, oh my God, I did good. Imagine a world where you're in perfect harmony and right relationship with who you are, all that you are. That was the gift of shalom, harmony, a right relationship with God, with creation, with each other, but even with yourself. Our God loves to provide. Second thing that we also get from the garden, though, is that when God created us in right relationship, he also created each of us with a call and a purpose. When I was growing up in the church, we all were chasing around for God's will, you know? Like, no matter what conference you went to, no matter what retreat you went to, no matter what book you read, everybody had to find God's will. And my whole life was just chasing around trying to find this God's will. But if we go back to the garden, we'll realize that God's will is to join him in doing his work. We'll realize that God's will is representing him to the rest of the world. We'll realize that being created male and female in the image of God is to be a representation of God here on earth. 
will realize that the call and the purpose is to say, not my empire, but your will be done. Not my kingdom, but Christ's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are all given a call. We're all given a purpose. From Eden to Calvary to this morning in Harrisburg, we all should not be chasing God's will, but asking God and saying, here I am, send me. What is your work that you need to do in this world? Here I am, send me. Here's my gifts. Here's my skills. Here's my abilities. Here's all I am, God. I surrender it at your feet. Here I am, send me to make your kingdom come. We all have a call and purpose. We all have a call and purpose. Are you walking in that call and purpose to bring God's will and to bring God's kingdom on earth? That was maybe the second gift that God gave us. But then as you go through the scriptures, you find this, this uh, I don't know if it's dualistic, but it definitely feels to me like two sides of a coin. You find how God fills the needs of his people, but then also how God fulfills the promises he's made to his people. So in some ways you can see them as the same thing, but they're a little bit different. During the last two sermon series, we've been looking about Abraham and Sarah. We talked about how for decades, for decades, they had to trust that God was good. For decades, they had to believe that this promise God made was going to come through. For decades, and they even tried to help God. And that didn't work out so well, but God still blessed them and carried them through. But they believed that God would fulfill their needs, and he also fulfilled their promises. And what about Israel itself? They went through years and years in the wilderness, but God led them to the promised land. What about Israel? They failed God time and time again, yet they knew a God who fully loved them and always sought to redeem them. And what about the prophets? You know, I I think some of us have been in situations where you feel like the voice in the desert, where you feel like the one in the wilderness that no one else is listening to. Now imagine being Amos or Jeremiah or Huldah or Deborah, where you are indeed the only voice in the desert, where you are indeed the only one that God seems to be not just speaking to, but who is listening to God. Now imagine going before kings who can kill you with their word that comes from their mouth and standing before kings and saying, you have led the people astray and you might be sitting on high, but when my God comes, he will topple all your kingdom. Think about these prophets who had to run for their lives. We looked at Elijah a couple months ago. He had this great scene at Mount Carmel where he, God just showed up in a powerful way and all these bell worshipers are destroyed. Yet the very next chapter, Elijah is depressed because he hits them. They're like, oh my gosh, they really want to kill me. God is a God who fills our needs. What about the kings? These kings, the one who tried to live right. And I think David is probably the greatest Israelite king. And what I love about David was not that he was perfect. Actually, that gives me hope because I'm not perfect either. But what I loved about David is that when he failed, he was never scared to come before God and choose God himself. What I love about David was he did not confess with God because he feared what God would do. He confessed with God knowing that God was good and knowing that God loved him. To me, that should be a freeing thing for us. A lot of us in the lie we tell ourselves is we can't tell God what's really going on as if he doesn't know what's really going on. But we can't tell God what's really going on because what might happen? And David gives us a picture. They're like, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter who you've been, no matter who you've hurt, if you come to God and ask for forgiveness, he will heal you and save you from your sins. God fills the needs of his people and fulfills his promises. You see that all the way through. But the thing I love most about God providing, just like the same with his compassion, with his justice, with him being creator, is that when God provides, it reveals who God is to us. Abraham last week learned that God is not the God of Abraham only. And how good would that be for us to know? That God is not the God of me. Or God's just not the God of my church. Or God's not just the God of my denomination. Or God's just not the God of my country. That God is actually the God of the universe, the God of the world. And then once Abraham learns that, the very next chapter, God says, but Abraham, I'm still the God of you. I'm still with you in what you're going through.
I'm so with you in your suffering. I'm so with you when you feel alone. I'm so with you when you feel like the whole world is against you. I'm so with you when you feel like you're not good enough. How amazing it is that we have a God who holds the world together, but works to hold us together, who speaks the world into existence, but yearns to hear from us, who loves the world so deeply, but wants to love us so vulnerably. The God who's the God of the world, God eternal, is also the God of the individual, the God of the particular. And I love, I love that in God revealing himself to us, that he's so big but so small when it comes to us, or so focused on us, that God himself simply wants us to know that he is good and we are loved and there's not too many times you're going to hear me from up here tell you to go get a tattoo because, you know, whatever you need to do to remember it, I think this is good to remember. Because here's the thing. We live in a world that's going to challenge you on this daily, that God is good or that you are loved. And I don't care if you got to get a tattoo on your forearm, but you need to leave here this morning knowing that God is good and you are loved. And if you don't want a tattoo, then you got the harder job. Write it on your book a hundred times every day till it's imprinted on your soul. Everybody needs to know that God is good and you are loved because this world will tell you that you are not good or that God isn't good or that you are not being capable. Why would we love you? The world wants you to know. But God is always good and you are always loved. And I don't care what you have to do to remember, but please hold on to that. Maybe it's a prayer you say every morning when you wake up. Praise God that you're good and thank you for loving me. Maybe it's a prayer you say before you eat your breakfast or your lunch or your dinner. Or for some of us who eat seven, eight meals a day, maybe it's a prayer you say every single time. Don't judge me. But God is good and we are loved. And God needs you to know that because this world is always going to attack that. God is good and you are loved. And maybe it's something you put on the screen of your computer. Maybe it's something you write down every day. But I want you to hold on to that because I think it's an elixir to any problem you'll face in this world. No matter what you're going through, if you can stand up and say, praise God for being good and thank God for loving me, I think you'll be all right. Amen? Amen. Here's the other one. Someone at the door told me this and I was like, well, I'm going to use that. God also works through our stories. Ever since I was a boy, one of the things I love is seeing God work. I've always loved seeing God work in people's lives. This is why I feel like I have the most blessed job in the world. Getting to see people say, this is where I was, but praise God, here is where I am. But praise God, this is where I'm going. We work in a business, if you will, where God gets to transform lives. And then the person at the door, Sheldon, told me, he said, you know what? It's good we have the Old Testament of God's stories. It's good we have the New Testament of God's stories. But praise God for the Now Testament. And I like that. We need to be a people of story. And I say this all the time, but it's true. Every good song is a story. Every good book is a story. Every good movie is a story. Every relationship is a story. God works in story. God's writing our stories. And you'll never know how sharing what you're going through is going to bless your people. And you'll never know. And here's the best part about being blessed by stories. You don't even know sometimes that you need that blessing. You might just woke up on a day and it's a Thursday and someone tells you what they're going through. You're like, oh my gosh, praise God. I am, I am so glad you told me that story. But we have to do a better job of telling stories to one another, of telling stories to one another. We grew up in a culture, maybe this is, I won't put this on you. I grew up in a church culture where we thought that we could argue people into the kingdom. Where we thought that if we had the right verses and we had the Romans road, that we were ready and then I found it interesting that when people started picking on millennials, they're like, you know what? Millennials just love stories, you know? And that's supposed to be a bad thing. And I was just like, you know what? This is why we keep blessing the world, we millennials, you know? Like, we remind you of truths that have always been there. Story has always been in our cultures. Every single culture that's ever existed loves stories. Because stories gives us a chance to connect. Stories gives us a chance to learn. Stories gives us a chance to say, this is what you've been through. Praise God you made it through. 
We have to do a better job of telling these stories. So God has blessed us with shalom in the world he created, with a call and with a purpose, with his, his fulfilling our needs, with, with his um, fulfilling his promises, with the stories that he's writing. But all of those pale in comparison to Jesus our Christ. When we come to Jesus Christ, we have God's best gift and God's ultimate gift for us. If you look up ultimate, it says that it's conclusive, it's decisive. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians puts it like this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The gift of Jesus Christ is that God has granted us salvation through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ alone. In Romans 5, throughout the book of Romans, Paul's talking about the law and grace. The law and grace. And he talks about how when we're enslaved to the law, that we cannot get to God on our own. And how the law was created to point people to God, but now it's created to show us where we fall short. But then you get to that famous verse in Romans 5 where he says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And if you read the tradition I grew up in, it said what? Grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is God's ultimate gift. Jesus is God's ultimate gift. It is God saying, this is the best imaginable gift I can give you, the gift of my son. This is the, 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 the one who will take all the broken shalom and bring it to redemption. This is the one who will take all the broken relationship and bring them to fruition of goodness. This is the one who will take my people who fell short and welcome them back home as children coming home to the Father. Jesus is God's gift for us. It's God's gift to us. And it's God's gift with us. And then we get to John 3. We get to Nicodemus. This is a very famous passage. In fact, when we want to tell people about Jesus, we go to John 3.16. We ignore the first 15 verses and then the last five ones after that. We go to John 3.16 and it's great. But there's something really fascinating about this conversation between Jesus and Nico. That's what I call him. I was going to go with Nick, but that's too cool. You know, Nico. But the thing about Jesus and Nicodemus here is interesting. Is that first we learn who Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee. And if you were blessed to grow up in church like me, the Pharisees were the known bad guys, right? Like if you weren't sure what's happening in the story, you saw a Pharisee, you're like, oh, bad guys, right? And then at some point, you start realizing in these conversations Jesus is having with the Pharisees, at some point, maybe it was just me, but I think it was more than one, you start realizing that, oh my gosh, those of us who grew up in church might kind of look like these Pharisees he's talking about, you know? And then you get this existential crisis that you got to work on that one, right? You do that on your own time. But the thing about the Pharisees that we have to acknowledge was they didn't try, they didn't wake up in the morning and say, I will be a bad person. The Pharisees were trying to be faithful to God as they knew. They studied the law. In fact, they so loved the law, they forgot the lawgiver. And we're like, oh, I can see that. But we forget that we in the people of grace, we so love the grace and the gift that don't we do what? Forget the giver. It's the same thing. We, we're better Pharisees than we knew. But the thing about the Pharisees is they so loved the law, took their eyes off of God, the lawgiver. The law was supposed to show you that you need God and you should rely on God. They elevated the law so much. They didn't want to touch or offend the law. So then they put laws on top of laws, right? Like they put fence laws and that's what they called it. Like, this is the law. We don't want to mess with that. So let's put a fence around it to protect the law. This is who Nicodemus was. And he didn't do it because he was trying to be evil. He did it because in his life at that point, that's what he thought following God was all about. And the Pharisees were a select group. You know, we think there was tens of thousands of, of Jewish people, even in the world at that time. There was only about 6,000 Pharisees. Now, some translators and commentators would be like, well, it's up to 6,000 or, or maybe a little bit more. We're just going to go with 6,000. That sounds good. Nice round number, right? There was only about 6,000 of them. But here's the other thing about Nicodemus. There's one line in here that says he's a member of the Sanhedrin. 
what's the Sanhedrin? I was trying to search through them like, what's a modern day example? You know what the Sanhedrin is? It's the state Supreme Court, right? So when, when empires would come over and take over, they were all about the Roman Empire in the Roman way. They didn't have time or care really to learn about the local culture, the local ethos, the local values. So they would set up these local courts that knew the, the, the local culture. Now, why do I say it's the state um, Supreme Court? Because they had a lot of power, you know? And when I was thinking about this, there's two things that terrified me. The first thing I realized is that when I'm hopeful about us in America, I'm like, yeah, most Americans can probably name the people on the federal Supreme Court. The majority? Maybe? Right? And then, here's the terrifying part. Here's the terrifying part. You're like, oh yeah, I can't name that. You're proud of yourself. But here's the terrifying part. That court gets to set the law for a generation or two. And we can't even name their names. Right? So after I got out of my feelings on that one, I was just like, oh, but a Sanhedrin's really the state Supreme Court. Then I thought to myself, oh my gosh, can anyone name someone on the state Supreme Court who has local jurisdiction over us, who sets the law for a generation or two here in Pennsylvania? Can any of us name them? Probably not. Right? Probably not. But here's the thing about that, though. That's why I want you to hold on to it, the Sanhedrin. The same thing's happening all over the world. For example, in England, there's an influx of people coming in from the Middle East. And the British are like, here's the British law. However, it might be a little bit different from your culture. So they've set up local, I would call them Sanhedrins, if you will, right? Local courts where you have that authority over the local people in your area. That's where Nicodemus is coming from. He's not just a scholar. He's one of the best. He's not just one of the best. He has authority. He doesn't just have authority. He has wealth. Nicodemus is a very, very important figure. And he comes to Jesus by night. Now, a lot of people say, you know what? It's because Nicodemus didn't want anybody to know. And maybe that's the case. Or may maybe Nicodemus was like, I'm, I'm going to feel out this guy, Jesus, and I don't want to get caught, right? And some people who did some studying and realized, though, that like, actually, most rabbis, you know, were bivocational or they had jobs in the day or they had children, you know, like they had life going on during the day. So what they would do is they would study at night where they would be undisturbed. Now, I, I kind of lean towards this understanding because I, I feel that in my soul, right? Like when everybody in my house is sleeping, that is the greatest time of the day, you know? If I'm going to study and get work done, that 10 to 2 window, don't judge me, that 10 to 2 window is a beautiful time, right? But Nicodemus comes at night. And we focus so much on the night that we forget that John is doing something very beautiful, that he starts with a man coming in the night and he ends with a man walking in the light. That's what John's focused on. John is focused on night and light, not that he's trying to hide. Because when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he says, we have seen, we have heard, and we know you are from God. Nicodemus isn't just debating Jesus here. He's trying to make sense of his world. All he knows is the law. And he's like, yo, listen, we got 619 of these and thousands of fence laws, but you're the most godly person. How is this possible? How is it possible that you're doing these things? He's trying to reorder his world to get it to make sense. He says, I've seen you. I've heard you. I know you're from God. How? You're not even a member of the 6,000, much less the Sanhedrin. You're a rabbi who used to be a carpenter that no one even knows, but yet when you talk, it's as if God himself is talking. How? And then Jesus says, well, it's because I'm from God, and I am God. And, and Jesus starts this, 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 this back and forth with Nicodemus. And a lot of times we frame it in debate, and I think that's like our own Western sensibilities, because if you debate well enough, you win, Right? I don't think it's just a debate going on. I think it's Jesus reordering Nicodemus' world. And Jesus starts with this concept, you must be born again. And when we first read this, even as a kid, I'm just like, I'm with Nicodemus on this. Like, how can you physically go back into your mother's womb? Like, what are we talking about here, Jesus, right? And even to this day, if you ask somebody, do you know what it means to be born again? We're like, yeah, we know what it means to be born again. I'm saved, right? Is that what Jesus meant? Because here's the thing. Nicodemus says, are you really asking me to be born again? And Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel. Come on, man. You know what it means to be born again. And here's what we don't realize about that culture. To this day, in most Jewish cultures, if you weren't born a Jew and you decide to convert to Judaism, guess what has to happen? You have to be born again. 
You have to say, I am now belonging to this family. I am now one of you. I am forgetting my past, and none of that matters as much to me as me now joining this family. Here's another thing in Nicodemus and Jesus' time, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was all about sonship, passing it down to a son or an heir. Guess what? If the father was ready to pass something to the son, the son had to be what? Born again. Because when you're adopted into Roman sonship, whether you were blood or you were just adopted in, you had to say, I am leaving my past behind. I'm giving up anything that has any ties to my past, and I'm going through this rebirth to be a member of your family. So when Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again, Jesus is saying, come on, man. You see it in your Jewish culture when new people come to faith. You see it in the Roman culture when new people get blessings. You, my friend, have to be born again. Jesus is talking about a radical, complete new birth. He's talking about new life in Christ. He's talking about a gift that comes from God. So when Nicodemus is asking, must I really be born again? Don't just take it for face value that he's asking, do I have to go in my mother's womb? You know what Nicodemus is really asking? I am a Pharisee. I am wealthy beyond you can imagine. I am a member of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful Jews in the land. I am elevating the law and, and trying to live by the law. What he's asking isn't, can I go back in my mother's womb? What he's asking is, Jesus, do you really love and accept me? Do you really want me in your family? Do you really, really think that I can be good enough to come in? Do you think that I deserve to be in? Nicodemus' question is not just physical, it's existential, right? It's life and death for him because he's asking Jesus, can I of all people be one of your people? And it's the same question we all have to ask God at some point in life. Do you choose me? And Jesus says yes, because Nicodemus, no one can understand heaven except me who's come from heaven. No one can understand heaven except the son of man, me, who needs to be lifted up. Moses lifted up the stick in the desert and people were healed. I'm going to be raised up so that all can be healed. God has sent me to save you. Nicodemus, you came by night. But now, my brother, you get to walk in the light. And the next two times we see Nicodemus, we see him as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he teaches us more in those two times than probably in John 3. Because the second time we see Nicodemus, Jesus is doing what Jesus always does, upsetting folks, telling them they ain't living right. Telling them that if they don't follow him, they're going to destruction. Or one of my favorites, if they don't belong to him, they belong to their father, the devil. Needless to say, this doesn't go over too well. And, and, and in John 7, the people are gathering to kill Jesus. And Nicodemus uses his power and his privilege. And he looks at his fellow Sanhedrin and says, Huh, doesn't our law say that everyone has a right to a trial? Why are you going to try to kill Jesus? And Nicodemus teaches us that as followers of Jesus, if we have any power and if we have any privilege, we better be sacrificing it to save our sisters and brothers. If we have any power and we have any position or privilege, we better be using it to help the least of these. Jesus saved Nicodemus' his life and gave him eternal life. But Jesus' time hadn't come. And Nicodemus, in following Jesus, gave Jesus a reprieve that saved them in John chapter 7. And the second time we see Nicodemus is in John 19, after Jesus has, has died on the cross. And Nicodemus, we said, was a man of great wealth. He shows up with what amounts to a royal burial. That's what he gave to Jesus. It wasn't just Joseph of Arithmetia. I was going to say arithmetic. Joseph of Arithmetic. No, not that guy either. But it was Nicodemus who brought the money, who paid the spices, because he said, Jesus is my king, and I'll give it all to my king. And again, he shows us that as disciples of God, we are to take everything that God's given us and to give it back to him. 
Nicodemus, who came by night, now walks in the light. Now, what are some things we need to pull out from here? The first one is when Nicodemus comes to God, he says, we have seen, we have heard, we have known. Don't underestimate what God has shown you. Don't underestimate what God has taught you. Don't undersell how God has been good to you. What have you seen? What have you heard? What do you know about God? Because it's not just for this moment. It's for every dark moment. It's not just when you're good. It's when you're feeling down. What have you seen? What have you heard? What do you know about God? Hold on to it. When have we come by night? Now, a lot of us believe this lie that, you know, when I work on myself enough, then I'm ready for God. When I clean myself up, then God can use me. When I'm living right and doing right and walking on the right path, then I'm good and ready for God. No, my sisters and brothers, Scripture tells us time and time again, now is the time, now is the day for salvation. God doesn't have to wait till you're perfect enough because here's the thing, you'll never be perfect enough. You'll never be clean enough apart from Jesus Christ. You'll never make enough progress apart from Jesus Christ. God's not waiting till you're ready to come see him. God wants you now. If Nicodemus can come by night, you can too. The other thing I think is interesting is when God talks about being born again, it's not just about salvation. It's about salvation and it's about a life of kingdom living and surrender. Do you look like Jesus. That's what it means to be born again. Because if I'm born again, my life will be less about looking like Hank, praise God for that, and more like looking like Jesus. That's what it means to be born again. This radical new birth, this new creation, this gift from God means not just that I'm saved, praise God I'm saved, right? But praise God I'm living for him. I'm surrendered to him. And that's what it means to be born again. Is my life really bringing glory to God? So we put a picture up here. This is a picture I took in Colombia. One of the things that's interesting, uh, we went to um, salt mines. And when they discovered salt, the engineers and the, the business people got together. And even though it was really, really dangerous, they're like, we need to mine the salt because, you know, we love salt, right? My little daughter, like I hide the salt in my house because my five-year-old just lick it. I just don't understand. I think that's her German side of the family. We're just praying through it. You know, we're praying through it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, like, in these salt mines, it was very, very dangerous. And, and it was so dangerous, people literally would go in not knowing if they would come out. So what they did in the salt mine is they actually built, like, a Stations of the Cross. And, and I was struck then, I'm struck now with, there's a lot of us who can complain so much about our, jo our jobs, right? They literally went to work every day not knowing if they would survive, and their response was, I will have prayer stations during my work day. And I was like, man, for those of us who hate our jobs, that would be, so great would that be, right? So just, man, I got like five minutes out of every hour where you just say, God, thank you, you know? Maybe it's five seconds, whatever you need, but like mapping out that. But what I love about this picture, and it's made in salt, and if you ever come to my house, that's like the first thing on the right. You can't miss it. It's behind the door, but you can't miss it. Is <laughs> this picture. Because last week when we talked about Abraham, we talked about how God asked him the impossible. You know, are you willing to give up that which you love the most and have your allegiance to me? But Isaac is only a type or an example of Jesus. God asked the impossible, and then through Jesus, God did the impossible. He gave up his son, whom he loved, his only begotten special son for us. Jesus is sent from heaven for us. Jesus went to Calvary for us to show that the blood that flowed from his veins and flowed down his body matters even more than the blood that flows in our own veins. Jesus was sent to save us. Jesus is the light of the world. But one of the things that we do about the cross is we look at it and we say, thank God for making the plan as if God wasn't also physically on the cross with Jesus. We say, thank God for making the plan as if God just dropped it off, you know? Like God was just like, I made the plan for salvation. There you go. I love this picture because it reminds me that when Jesus died on the cross for the world, for our sins, the spirit was above. The father was holding him and the son was giving his life 
for you and for me and for the world. That's why I love this picture. Jesus is the Lamb of God. I didn't tell this story in the first service, but I got two minutes, so I'm going to try to squeeze it in. I'm always reminded of my missionary friend who was actually a part of the Wycliffe Translation team. His brother was at um, a remote island off the coast of Papua New Guinea. And when they got there, they were translating John. You know that scene, right, where John is like, behold, the Lamb of God. And we all read that. We're like, yeah, as if we have lambs at home, right? Like, we really read that like we understand it. Like, we're like, oh, yeah, the Lamb of God, you know? We do our best to understand the Lamb of God. It's the sacrifice, Jesus being the sacrifice for us. But they realized among this culture of people, they had no concept of what a lamb was. So how do you translate Lamb of God when they have no concept? Like, we barely have a concept of lamb because most of us don't have lambs at home. We barely understand it. So what they said was, you know what? Let's take a step back. We believe that God is the God of the world. We believe that God has been revealing his truths to the world. We just need God <laughs> to help us see it, you know? So they took a step back. And one of the things they learned was fascinating. And, and, and as a Liberian, I feel good about this. But if I was Jewish, it's, it's not very sensitive to the Jewish palate, if you will. But what they found was in this culture, there were, there were two kinds of pigs. There were pigs that I would love that you raised to eat, you know? But then there were pigs who served as like the family pet, you know? You might think that's weird, but they think it's weird that you think dogs are pets, you know? Same thing, cats too, you know? But these pigs <laughs> would be raised as members of the family. They wouldn't just be a pet. They would be raised as members of the family. And, and, and because they were pigs and they're delicious, what they would do is they would raise the best pet of every family. And every time there was a new visitor that came to town, you would gather all the family pets around and you would debate and you would argue who has the best pig. Because what they were saying is, this is what values most to me. This is what matters most to me. And I will give it to celebrate you joining our community. Because by sacrificing my pig, I'm welcoming you into the family. And these Wycliffe translators says, oh my goodness gracious, we really think that Jesus is the pig of God. Like, we really are going to put a scripture together that says Jesus is the pig of God. And we laugh at it. But I would contest that those people in Papua New Guinea understand Jesus as the lamb of God or the pig of God on a deeper level than I ever will. Because they understand what it is to give your very best to welcome a stranger into the family. We're going to end by doing communion this morning. I'd like to invite the deacons to get ready. And I got to get my communion paper. In the next moments, we'll be sharing communion together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. The deacons will be passing the bread and the cup. As you receive them, we ask that you hold them until all have been served so we can partake in them together. The table of the Lord is for all who believe, not all who belong to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, all who belong to Jesus, for all who have received Jesus Christ as Lord. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty, you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now let the supper of the Lord is spread before you. Lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Red, there it is. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for sending us your Son. Holy Spirit, we thank you for revealing this truth to us. Jesus, we thank you for freely, for willingly, for lovingly giving your body to bring us home. In your holy and precious name, amen.
Please join me for the responsive reading. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the cup. We thank you for your blood. We ask that you bless us as we accept it and as we choose to give you our lives in return. Bless us as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
drink of it together, and be thankful. give us five minutes. Um, I want to invite the choir up so we can sing the last song and also pastors and intercessors as well. Uh, we'd love to pray for you for anything you've got